What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to After Putin, a new podcast series from Intelligence Squared. Until Friday, June the 23rd, the question of what comes after Putin had been largely academic. It felt distant, hypothetical. But by the following evening, it had become one of the most urgent and important questions in the world today. In this series, we speak to experts and look for some answers. I'm Connor Boyle. In this episode, we speak to Sam Green about Putin's potential reprisal for the Prigozhin and Wagner mutiny. Prior to moving to London, Sam Green lived and worked in Moscow for 13 years. He's a go-to expert on all things to do with the Kremlin, and his books include Putin versus the People, The Perilous Politics of a Divided Russia, and Moscow in Movement. He also puts together some really interesting Twitter threads on what's happening in Russia that we highly recommend. But now, let's get into episode two, The Reprisal. President Vladimir Putin is accusing the Wagner mercenary group of an armed rebellion, and he warns that those involved will be punished. Well, we begin with breaking news, and Russia's defense ministry says preparations are underway for Wagner to hand over its military hardware. Now, Sam, there was a video circulating on social media over the last few days of an interview with Putin where he says he can forgive a lot of things but not betrayal. Do you think he's feeling betrayed? Well, he's clearly feeling betrayed. At least that's what he's telling us. And it's hard to imagine how um, he couldn't come to that uh, conclusion, right? Um, you know, Prigozhin was very much an animal of, of his creation, somebody um, with whom he had entrusted a great deal of power and influence, allowed to develop really quite extraordinary resources um, in ways that were, that were, of course, quite you know, beneficial to Putin and to his system of power. Um, uh, but at the end, despite whatever Prigozhin might have said about the fact that he wasn't coming for Putin, uh, that this wasn't a coup, you know, the reality is I don't think you can come to the president of a country, hand him the head of his defense minister on a platter and say, sorry, sir, I'm not challenging you. It's just the defense minister I was after, right? It, it doesn't... Um, it, it, it doesn't work that way. It cannot, I think, be interpreted that way. Um, and so I think it, it, it was a betrayal uh, and, uh, and Putin very much feels it. Do you think ordinary people in the streets of Rostov would have spooked Putin? Um, I think that, uh, you know, Putin has always understood and certainly his advisors have understood the degree to which public support uh, for him is contingent. Uh, 
and it's contingent on a number of things, um, part of which is you know, the, the state of affairs in the country. But really, I think that's not the main thing. The main thing that keeps people compliant, that keeps people in line and keeps people supporting Putin is not a fear of being you know, punished by the state for stepping out of line. Uh, it's a fear of being punished by uh, your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, your family members. Uh, for stepping out of line. It's that sense that wherever you look, there is a consensus in support of Putin. And thus, if you were to uh, you know, place yourself outside that consensus, you place yourself outside the circle of trust that is so important to most people um, uh, and, and, and is particularly important in, uh, in, in Russia, where people have for 30 or 40 years been dealing with the state that they see as you know, somewhere between dysfunctional and predatory. Uh, and so they want to rely on, uh, on, on, on one another. And again, that, that does require trust. Uh, so that consensus, again, that sense that people look around sort of the kitchen table and see um, an environment in which Putin is kind of seen as inevitable and, and, and without alternative um, is uh, really quite important to Putin's longevity. And one of the things that this uh, series of events over the last several days might have done is to begin to puncture that, to begin to make it possible for people to have different kinds of conversations around the kitchen table or the water cooler, uh, to um, begin to imagine maybe a different future, but even before that, just to make it a little bit easier. Right now that you've seen the events from, from Rostov, right uh, now that you see you know, the, the, the depth and the size of this challenge, the fact that so many people uh, in Russia may actually know people who have been involved with, uh, with, with Wagner and, and fought um, in, in Wagner or with Wagner in, in Ukraine, right? That this, um, uh, you know, may give people permission to have different sorts of kitchen table conversations in ways that Putin may find quite challenging. And so I think it's not accidental that when we look at what his public statements have been since the end of the uprising, uh, he has really focused on this idea that what won out at the end of the day was consensus, right? That, that all of, of Russia, um, you know, stayed with the state, did not back uh, uh, Prigozhin, uh, and that this was, uh, this strength was a reflection of um, of the consolidation of feeling and sentiment within, uh, within Russian society. It may be wishful thinking, but it's what he needs the Russian public to believe. Do you think these public statements in Putin's minds are the end of this? Do you think he's trying to move away from this and create a new narrative as quick as possible? Um, I'm not sure that the Kremlin knows the answer to that question yet. Right. Um, the fact that they are continuing to do these sort of set piece events does suggest that they're not entirely satisfied that uh, Russian society is ready to move on uh, and that when it does move on, it will move on in the direction that the Kremlin wants it to go. And so I would expect they may keep investing in this a little bit longer. Uh, there are some other questions, though, that the Kremlin needs to deal with, one of which has to do with Prigozhin himself. Right. Um, how are they going to handle him uh, and the, the, uh, what remains of Wagner and Prigozhin's um, empire, which, again, you know, has done a lot of things uh, of, of use for the Kremlin, and they may not be willing to, to part ways with it quite yet. So there's that set of questions. 
There's a set of questions around the security state and how it came to be that it was possible for um, an armed uprising to reach you know, a point about 200 clicks south of Moscow. Uh, and uh, you, know, you, you supposedly have a security state to prevent that from happening. So why is it that that wasn't prevented um, is a question that they will want to, to grapple with. I think they will also be tempted to look for ways in which they can weaponize this against various parts of the opposition uh, that they uh, want to continue to put pressure on and to, uh, to, to marginalize. Um, all of these things uh, you know, have very fine balances that they're going to have to figure out how to maintain. If you're going to reorganize the security state, you don't want to look like you're giving in to the demands of of Prigozhin, otherwise you reward this kind of behavior. Right? Uh, if you're going to punish Prigozhin, you don't want to turn him into a martyr. If you are going to um, uh, use this to weaponize um, uh, the, the coup again and, and, and go after the opposition, you risk um, communicating to Russians that um, you're not so sanguine about uh, the situation. Uh, that, um, uh, uh, in, in fact, this may have been more of a challenge than, again, the set-piece speeches uh, appear to be letting on. Right? So these are not easy decisions uh, for the Kremlin to make. I suspect they're spending a lot of time in, in meetings trying to figure out how they're going to move forward. And from a military perspective, obviously there it was quite humiliating for Shoigu, but how do you from you know the ordinary soldiers right through to generals do you think this will have impacts on the battlefield in ukraine or is this a side story they're not really paying much attention to well so the russian military of course works as hard as it can to filter the information that gets through to soldiers on the front line uh, so they may not be aware of everything that we are aware of but we have seen a lot of evidence that people on the front lines are, you know, they're on social media, they're on Telegram in particular, they're getting all kinds of information and, and sometimes feeding information uh, back uh, into some of the military blogs and, and, and chat groups on, on Telegram and other places on social media. Uh, and so I think that the likelihood is this will, if it hasn't already made it to the front line, it, it will. I think that's one of the reasons why we saw that the Putin's address today went directly to the military. Um, but um, it's, it is possible, of course, that this will have an impact on uh, morale. From the outside, it seems hard to imagine that it wouldn't have some kind of a disorienting effect at the very least. Uh, but the people on the front lines are also involved in a, in a fight right? that hasn't stopped. They have continued to fight. The Ukrainians have continued to fight. The Ukrainians are making gradual progress uh, in parts of the southern front in particular, where uh, the Russians maybe not w would not have expected. Uh, and uh, so I would imagine that the firefight and the reality of battle, you know, may concentrate the minds uh, a bit uh, and make it difficult for people to focus on what's been going on uh, in uh, in Russia. Uh, but the um, uh, the people, the officers who are responsible for maintaining um, morale, maintaining commitment and maintaining focus right, are going to, to have their work cut out for them for a little while. And speaking of focusing the minds, there's been some talk in the media about 
a potential uh, escalation in, in, in relation to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plants. Now, something, a crisis there could quickly change the narrative. Do you think there's possibilities that we could see escalation there? Um, I think it would be foolish to write off uh, anything, including that kind of a, of a prospect. The conversation that began before all of this mutiny uh, in, in Moscow about the uh, potential wisdom of a preventative nuclear strike somewhere in Ukraine or, or in Europe um, is still very much a live conversation. Now, I don't tend to think that that actually reflects the way that the Kremlin is, is thinking, um, but again, it would be foolish to write it off entirely. Um, we have seen at various points the Kremlin try to ramp up um, the temperature in the war in order to um, shift the mindsets, uh, I think both in Russia and, and, and more importantly in Ukraine and the West. Broadly speaking, those attempts have failed. They've created a lot of, of damage and caused a lot of casualties. Uh, but they haven't you know, fundamentally weakened the resolve of the Ukrainians or of Western governments to, uh, to, to support Ukraine. Um, and uh, I think it's also unpredictable, right? If you were to take such a, uh, a dramatic step as creating a nuclear catastrophe, right? That can, of course, you know, that the fallout can have, can have impact on Russia itself um, and on Belarus, right? Which is obviously a key ally in, in an increasingly key ally for Russia in this. Um, I, I think the Kremlin might be worried about the potential, um, without the pun intended, the potential fallout of, of a, uh, the political fallout of, of that decision. So I wouldn't expect them to do that unless they got uh, really quite desperate indeed. What you've sort of explained to us really is that the Kremlin have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of questions they need to figure out, both domestically and this internationally in Ukraine. There's obviously an election next year. Do you see any uh, scenario where Putin says, it's, hedges his bets and steps back and, and someone else comes forward? Again, I think we always need to retain the capacity for surprise. Uh, but for me, the prospect of trying to hand over power to somebody else, again, raises more questions than it answers uh, for, for Putin. Um, there is a reason that leaders who amass the kind of power that Putin has amassed tend to um, you know, leave office either in chains or in a box. Um, it is very difficult to hand over power in a system that is as reliant on informal relationships and sort of tacit agreements uh, as the Russian system is. Um, power does not accrue to a new president uh, simply because um, he is endowed with uh, the constitutional authority. Uh, it, it accrues to a president because he's endowed with the faith of, of the elite and the people who matter in, in, in the political and the economic systems. And so um, even if Putin were to step back, the reality is that I think power in Russia would remain very much centered around him. He would have to find a way of taking himself out of sort of availability entirely. And that's a very difficult thing to do if you also at the same time want to protect you know, your livelihood for the remainder of your life, the, the, the livelihood of um, your family, of those who depend on you. Um, and 
so that tends to be, well, again, the temptation might be there to say, look, I've had enough of this. I really you know, would rather not have to deal with these problems that incidentally I created. Um, uh, you know, it is um, uh, often trying to extricate yourself will only create more problems rather than, than solving any. And so people find it easier just to stay on. And you've spoken about how maybe this weekend for the first time in a long time, those seeds have changed the, the potential for people to allow themselves to think of what Russia without Putin uh, might look like. What do you think people uh, not in Russia from outside uh, in the West and, uh, and in neighboring countries should be thinking about should they be preparing for the scenario that Putin regime ever collapsed? Look, I mean, those two things are not mutually exclusive. I think, you know, we've seen very clearly from the Biden administration, for example, that they have communicated both publicly and I think privately to the Kremlin that they have nothing to do with this whatsoever. Whether the Kremlin believes them is another question. Uh, but they probably do in this particular incident. Um, I think... Um, at the same time, well, yes, you don't want to get involved. Anything that a Western government does at this point is only going to make things probably more difficult for everybody involved. Uh, and the ability of the West to have any leverage over what the outcome might be uh, is um, somewhere between limited and non-existent. Um, the reality is that uh, we should always be analyzing the potential for change. Um, we, I think it's, it's a fool's errand to get involved in making predictions about what that change is likely to look like. These processes are, uh, first of all, not linear, right? They can, they can go in, in a very unpredictable directions. And so they're hard to forecast, but also whatever forecasts you would create are often built on, if they're going to be robust forecasts, they need to be built on information to which we simply don't have much in the way of access. Uh, so rather than dealing in probabilities, I think governments need to deal in plausibilities. They need to look at the range of potential outcomes, be aware of the consequences of those potential outcomes, the opportunities and the challenges those outcomes are going to create, and also be aware of the processes that would lead to those outcomes. Right? So if we want to think about you know, how change would come about, there's a number of questions to have in mind, right? one of which is, how does Putin leave office? Right? Does he leave office uh, in a way that is chaotic or in a way that is sort of orderly and there's a transfer of power? Right? Uh, once he leaves office, does he hand over power to somebody who is the consensus candidate uh, for, uh, for the elite? Or is there some kind of a competition that maybe even remains an open competition after somebody formally takes the reins of power? A third question is, how is that competition managed? Is it managed um, uh, via uh, so, you know, some appeal to the ballot box, for example? Constitutionally, Russia is a democracy, and so the legitimacy of, of the president does need to have some um, uh, electoral backing behind it. Uh, or uh, is there violence involved? Right? Do we see you know, a mad dash to the Kremlin with guns uh, in, in order to take charge, right? All of these things are, are, are plausible in various different configurations. You can sort of game them out and begin to think about um, not only what the impacts would be, 
but you can begin to think about the symptoms, right? What would we expect? Because we because so much of Russian politics is opaque to us at the moment. It is a black box. We can't go there and do the research. When we talk to people, we don't really know, you know, how much we can trust them uh, and trust the information they're giving us. Uh, but we can look for symptoms, right? As things begin to happen, we can um, uh, gauge the directions in which things might be moving right, by what we can observe from the outside, and we can make cautious preparations uh, on that basis. Great, Sam. And finally, based on what's happened in the last uh, the last few days, do you think the most likely scenario is in a few weeks, we go back to business as usual. Putin's the strong man. He's in charge. Everyone respects his authority. We're back to six weeks ago. Um, I think it may be difficult to go back to six weeks ago, uh, but I do think it's likely that Putin will remain in power. Look, we have forecast Putin's demise at multiple uh, points over the last 23 years. He has come through, but at each point he has come through by adapting and mutating his political system. So the question to me is less one of does he fall, eventually he will, right? But, but it's less one of does he fall than one of, of how does he change the nature of power in Russia in order to maintain control. Um, when eventually he does fall, uh, as I've just tried to say, I think it's much less important who takes over than how they take over. What's the process? Because that process determines the incentives that they face, right? what the expectations are placed on that person by the elite, by the public, what the expectations and incentives are for compliance among the elite and the ordinary public, uh, and, uh, and thus what are the, uh, uh, the, the boundaries that are going to be placed on power and the levers of power that will be given to whoever uh, uh, takes office. To me, um, you know, those questions are much, they're much more important, but they're also much more tractable than trying to guess, you know, is it going to be Prigozhin? Is it going to be Shaigu? Is it going to be Navalny? Is it going to be, you know, uh, Gerwin Grief, right, the head of Sparebank, right? I mean, maybe, right? It could be somebody entirely from out of left field. Um, but uh, again, I think it's, we have no basis on which to make that judgment with any degree of confidence. Uh, and so I would um, accept the uncertainty on that front uh, and focus on what we can observe, which is the broader sort of systemic and institutional behaviors and processes that actually create uh, power uh, and, and create the ways in which power works and in a lot of cases doesn't work in Russia. Thanks for listening to this episode of After Putin, a new series from Intelligence Squared. Part 3 will be released on Thursday the 29th of June, exclusively for Intelligence Squared subscribers. This episode was produced and edited by me, Connor Boyle. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or tweet us at intelligence2. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. 
The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.